Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, on the sporting couches on the road at the Nottingham Ice Centre. It's the home of the Nottingham Panthers ice hockey team who've had a fantastic season and where ice skating talents Torval and Dean were nurtured. It's also the training base for one of Britain's most successful winter sports medalists, Elise Christie. She's Britain's fastest short track skater. She was the first British woman to win a world championship gold medal when she triumphed in the 1500 metres and 1000 metres. Yet she's never had that success at the Winter Olympics and memorably crashed out of two races at Pyeongchang Games and was disqualified in another. She's been open about her mental health problems that have included anxiety, depression and self-harm. She's our biggest star in the skating world. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch. I'm psychotherapist Gary Bloom and in a special programme recorded at the National Ice Centre in Nottingham, my guest is Elise Christie, who said she would never have got through her troubles without psychological help. Where are you today, psychologically? Where? I mean, we've read a lot of stuff in the uh, online and in newspapers saying things are much better. What is the day-to-day experience of being you? Um, well, I'd say I'm the best place I've been in about six years. Um, it's just like being me again. Um, I'd say like gradually over four to six years, somewhere along the lines, I lost myself and each day the percentage of how much I was left of me was left Mm. lessened and I just got to a point where there was barely any of my original self there and now I'm 100% me you did say in an interview that um seeing a clinical psychologist helped you through those difficult days can you just explain a little bit about what the support they gave because that's going to be really important to people who are listening to the show having struggles like in hindsight it's like I would have went and seek seek that sooner you know I was about a year and a half being really bad before I even admitted and that I needed that um I just got sick I eventually got sick of feeling what I was feeling well I think I just was tired all the time I was in bed a lot unless I was training I was stressed all the time. I couldn't socialize. Uh, there was there was lots of negative feelings, and and people would said for ages that I should probably go down that route. But I was like, no, I'm fine. Like, 
Can the, the reason I ask this question, I'm being a bit naughty here, is I'm trying <laughs> to work out whether you came to that conclusion or a significant other, a member of your family, a close friend. No, no, no. It said it. Definitely me. Like, people had said it, not my family because I didn't talk to them about it, but people who I was around day to day in the environment, like my coach, he's known me, he'd known me like 10 years at this point. He had said it, you know, but I was like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm just, this is just me. At least I'm kind of shocked that you wouldn't share something this personal with your nearest and dearest, your family. Why? Um, I've been asked that one a lot, and I think I found it harder to speak to the people I cared most about about it and the people who cared for me the most than anyone else. And I think it's because then it's another stress added on that you're then upsetting them as well. And that's like the last thing I needed was them worrying and stressing about what was going on with me. Don't you think they knew? No, they had no idea. So they live across the other side of the country to me. I don't see them. They couldn't tell in your voice the things you were saying, the reporting? No, my mum was shocked. Really? Yeah. So how did mum respond when she... My coach, who probably, like, not in terms of, like, family or obviously who you're closest to, but he was the person I was closest to in terms of who I seen and spoke to and seen how my behaviours changed gradually. Mm. He knew, and I'd say my ex-boyfriend, the boyfriend at the time, he knew to an extent, didn't understand it, but he knew. Um, but no, I wouldn't say they were. So whose decision was it to tell mum? I never told mum. <laughs> was it dad? Never told dad, never told family. They found out when everyone else found out. <laughs> How was their reaction? They were shocked. Um, Who was most shocked? Probably my brother. This is Jamie. Jamie, yeah, yeah. What I was see. his reaction? Well, he was just... He wasn't, there was no like negative reaction. They mainly asked questions and were just a bit like, well, firstly, like, like you said, why didn't you talk to us? But then the, Jamie was more like, couldn't believe it because out of us two, I've always been the one that comes across as confident and bubbly and chatty and social and like walk through life with roasting tinted glasses normally, as they call me. So he just was like, what? Ooh. You know? Like it was a shock, but. There was no negative response to it. When you realised how supportive your family were, Elise, did you then reflect back and say, you know what, I should have told them earlier? Uh, this is a difficult one because I feel like I'm going to give a bad answer. But I think in an external point of view, if I was looking at my best friend in that position, I would think I would say to them, you need to tell your mum. You need to speak to your mum because you know your mum's going to support you and they're going to help you. But for me personally... I think it would have blown it up into a bigger deal if I had at the time. And actually keeping it contained was good for me. Um, And I guess that's where it depends kind of on personality. Because for me, like, although I had a clinical psych help in, I generally tried to keep everyone else out of it because I I like to deal with things myself. I've always been like that. Whereas in I think some people obviously work where they like people helping and caring and having that input and I think that's where then yeah that is really important to share it with your family but the biggest thing that I think is important is getting the psychologist because they're the ones that actually know how to help and know how to deal with it and they deal with people like this all the time and like for me that's the most important thing is accepting help from them. So what's it like now sitting down with somebody from from the psychological world? Yeah, I guess it's different because before all, I felt like all you'd go in and do is talk about yourself. 
I actually felt really selfish a lot of the time when I came out because I just nagged on about everything that was wrong and what I felt and what was making me act the way I was acting and how I could deal with that. And now I don't feel so much like that. I just feel like I can go in and I can have a vent, but I can have a chat and I can talk about what's going on with me and focus more on like performance-related psychology. And this is where the frustration is, is like I spent two years wasted not getting help which then meant I couldn't move my performance psychology forward frustrating that I had to go to Pyeongchang like that where I could have dealt with it earlier and that's why I'd really encourage people to try and deal with it as soon as they can and accept it because it's not a weakness you know at the time that's what I seen it as weakness and that's why I didn't go get help but it's it's you can't help it it's your hormones it's an imbalance in your brain chemically it's and and it's not gonna resolve with unless you get the help Let's go all the way back to your early days growing up in West Lothian. Um, your dad leaves when you're six months old and you live with your mum for the first ten years of your life. What was it like growing up in, in, in West Lothian? Um, it, was, it was nice in some respects because it was, it's such a quiet place and um, there's a lot less, like, say, compared to what I experienced when I came out of Nottingham and seeing what some of the kids got up to like in terms of drinking and underage and things like that there was none of that really um so it was easier to be um a perfect child in some ways because none of them things were around were you the perfect child probably unfortunately <laughs> why unfortunately i don't know um just just boring isn't it but yeah no i was i never really got in trouble a couple of times maybe always back when i was told to be back you know um but i had a strict upbringing so Tell me about your relationship with Dad, because that was a bit tricky to start with, those first 10 years when Dad has left. Was it something that you repaired or felt you repaired, or did you get enough of Dad in those early ten years, first 10 years? Um, I didn't really have a close relationship with him because of the divorce. I think partly that came from him and partly from Mum. I, obviously, I, don't, I never asked the details, so I don't know which end caused it more. But, um, but yeah, I didn't see my Dad much, um, and he... He was quite a big drinker when we were younger, so in terms of that, didn't want to be around him all the time necessarily. So I was a lot closer to my mum and my gran. Um, but my dad came more into my life, yeah, probably about... Well, it was after I moved to Nottingham, we mm. got closer um, and then started like developing the relationship then, really. For many people like yourself, when dad returns after an early split in the marriage... There's a mixture of feelings going on, crossness, anger, why did you leave, all those sort of things. Are those emotions that you recognise in yourself? Yeah, um, yeah, I would say so, but at the same time, like, I class myself as quite an emotionally intelligent person, so I could understand that what he went through and why he did the things he did. Um, and was able to kind of see and sometimes you know today I still get frustrated if he'll say something it'll set me off and I'll have a go at him over it but at the same time most of the time I'm able to like reason it in my head almost and understand why he was the way he was. You were very close to mum weren't you? Yeah. Emotionally? Yeah 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 I still am um you know she she drives me insane. (laughs) All our parents do. Yeah. (laughs) And the relationship um, takes a slight different turn when, when at 10 years old, your mum meets a new partner, Yanis. Was that a tricky time for you? 
No, again, like I think my mum was blessed with me in some ways. Like it, it didn't, it, it didn't affect me. I know a lot of kids don't like new parents coming in or someone coming in and trying to be their parent, but it didn't bother me. You know what I mean? Yana always, Yanis always got along, and uh, and my mum was happy, so that meant you know I was happy. I was glad she had someone that she could rely on now. And how did he get on with your brother Jamie? He's he's slightly older than you, isn't he? My brother's a trickier one to get to know than me. He's less social and a lot more reserved. And um, I hold massive grudges, but I think with people I care about and who I can see have done a lot for me as I have for them. Like if it's like a mutual friendship or something, then I'm, I am quite forgiving. But if it's someone I don't really like, then no. <laughs> so I can vary. <laughs> I wouldn't just dislike someone for no reason or like act a certain way towards someone for no reason. There's always something that's caused it. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch, recorded at the National Ice Centre in Nottingham, and with me is Elise Christie, Britain's fastest short track skater. So you start skating as a seven-year-old, but you're figure skating then. And in our telephone conversation a few days ago, you said to me, I wasn't particularly into figure skating. No. So why did you do it? I think, like, my mum basically knew I was a kid that had a lot of energy and, like, wanted me to use the energy in the right way. Um, my friend did it, so she took me along to it. I was I was good at sport in general. Like, I didn't actually like sport that much, but I was quite good at it. Um, and so she kept me doing it, basically. Um, and she's always been quite a pushy mum and a mum that wants you to achieve. But then again, you think about it and everything happens for a reason. I end up in short track because of it. So in some ways, it's worked out really lucky. <laughs> I know, but I'm just wondering the pressure that young people are placed under by the expectations of their parents, who sometimes live vicariously through mm. their kids. And it sounds like that was maybe a bit of what mum was doing yeah I think it was and I, but I think you know there is a lot of kids as you said that go through that and like there were, yeah there was times where I just hated it and I didn't want to be there because of the amount of pressure if I fell over she's like why are you falling and all of this while and I'm kind of edging you towards here I wonder if that's the first pressure placed on you Elise which could result in some form of anxiety you, you don't like performing in front of people. You you said that to me that we you. you well, be... I don't like being looked at. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking the other way now. <laughs> and you figure skating like it's so different to short track. You know, in short track you don't realize there's people watching because you're just racing. Sure, it's a performance. Like people were watching me perform and judging me. So it's not necessarily just my mum. It's like the fact that there's judges there and. I understand. Yeah, but at 13 you try speed skating. For the first time, and you, you, you're skating maybe a couple of times a month, and you quite enjoy that, don't you? Yeah, I did like speed skating a lot more. I much preferred that you're just going out and racing. Um, but there wasn't much access to it in Scotland, and there still isn't really. So I couldn't really do it full time or anything like that. And then, so then I was kind of like, you know, I'm done with sport now, I'm going to focus on school and get good standard grades, move on and do my hires, and then. And then Nottingham come calling at 15 years old yeah and invite you down to this center here 
I just wonder what your emotions are every time you come back into this building because this has been your spiritual home since being 15 years old. It's more than, what, nearly 15 years ago you, you, you moved down here. What does it feel like being here? The only way I can describe it to you is that the day, I remember the day I left for Pyeongchang, I walked through the rink and I thought, well, I'm never going to set foot in here again. That's quite sad because I was going to (laughs) retire. So I know that it has been a massive part of my life and all the rink staff have, they actually came and watched me win the world championships when I won. So Mm. there is a good relationship here and it's been a big part of my development, obviously. So I was sad that probably I'd never be in the rink again. But um, I am still here at the moment. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's... I'm kind of interested about leaving West Lothian and coming here as a 15-year-old adolescent. You're put in with a, uh, a family here to look after you. And what you said to me when we spoke on the phone a couple of days ago was I felt very much on my own. I had to get on with it. A huge thing for a 15-year-old to deal with. I, think, I don't know. I think it's like... Uh, any situation I'm put in, I just deal with it. So I was put in a situation where this is where you're going to live. The ice rink's here. It was a five-minute walk from the ice rink. I had to learn to cook and clean and wash my clothes and do all that. And, and the host family, were, you know, who I lived with was really nice, but they didn't. They weren't a family. They, you have to do everything for yourself. So it was a big shock, but at the same time, like, it didn't really bother me so much. If you had a 15-year-old daughter, would you do that to your daughter or allow that to happen to your daughter? Yeah. If, it's, if she's following her dreams, I don't see the problem with it. No, like, my mum definitely encouraged it because, for me, as I said, I didn't like sport that much. So then mum definitely encouraged it. But, again, we were told it would be a house family and then it turned out it wasn't. And I did. I moved out not long after that. Um, but... At the time, to be honest, I wouldn't have known what I wanted. I was too young. So I think she did me a massive favour. Looking back, was it the right decision for you? I know you can build, look at back and your career's been fantastic and all the success you've had, but it's a, it's a difficult gig. Surely as a 15-year-old leaving West Lothian, coming to a strange city, in with a host family and the expectations placed on you as a, as a budding athlete. Yeah, no, if I hadn't done it then, I wouldn't have made it. There's no way. So it was definitely the right decision. Because I, when I came down and did races down here, I was against people who were training at least once or twice a week. So for me, I was like pretty behind, and I wasn't actually beating a lot of people. So that so, for someone to actually recognise that I had the talent was quite big, I think, because mm. I hadn't realised that. I knew I could do a lot of great fitness things, but I never knew that I was going to be any good at speed skating, to be honest. <laughs> and what... Did it feel like when you realised you had not only a skill, but a skill that could take you all the way to the very top? What was that like? Well, I didn't actually realise that till quite late. I think um, there was, after my first Olympics when I was 19, I was like, right, I've come, I've achieved, I've been at the Games. I didn't expect to go to the Olympic Games. Everything's progressed really quickly. So, So I've got this choice now where I either go back home and I start go, I go back into school or uni and do all that, or I stay here but I win. So I'm not staying here and doing another Olympics. So I'm just like, I'm staying here if I'm going to win. So at that point, it's not like I recognised that I could do that, but I just decided that that was going to happen. Hmm. And I don't think 
I realized I was any good till much later down the line. It took evidence first. So I had the blame belief that I could do it, but I didn't know that I was any good and it was actually going to happen. When do you start suffering from performance anxiety? When does this start beginning to pop up in your life? I think, like, obviously the better I got, the it started to creep in. Um, I would say... Yeah, I'd say after my first Olympics, it gradually just crept in. What was the anxiety? Because working with elite sports people who suffer from anxiety during performance, my experience is they have a fear that it might all go wrong, it might all break down, it might go terribly wrong. Was that your experience? I don't think so. See, I I was always quite confident before I went on the ice, and I never really thought, I wasn't good enough or, like, that I wasn't going to do it. There was nothing like that. Mine was, like, a freezing kind of anxiety where, like, during the race I'd suddenly freeze and wouldn't be able to move. So I'd just be skating and wouldn't be able to move up the pack. So it was more actually about the people around me when I was racing. And I'm just wondering what triggered it because a lot of people that I have spoken to and listened to this show talk about what triggers anxiety. And kind of that's where I'm going with this question. What triggered your anxiety in the middle of a a really big speed skating event? I guess if I could answer that, I wouldn't get anxiety anymore. (laughs) That's that's the job I do. That's why I work with people like you, Elise, to, to try and drill down. The start point of this is the is your racers. You're looking at them. You're taking something from them, and that's causing anxiety for you. Other people might say, actually, it's the crowd watching. I'm getting the anxiety. It's their expectations more than it's actually the people I'm competing with. Yeah, I don't know. I just became very scared of the feeling of skating. What was the? We're going to play a game here, just a psychological <laughs> game. It's called Down the Stairs, <laughs> and it'll hopefully take us to a point that will explain what you were frightened of. So you were frightened of the other skaters, yeah? That's what you just said. Well, no, I wouldn't say, like, I'm not scared of them. I'm sc- I am got scared of skating, just the feeling of skating. What could have gone wrong in the feeling of skating? What would what would happen? What's the worst thing that could have happened in that? We've, see, I've gone through this, and they say falling over is the worst thing, but I ain't scared of falling. So what are you scared of? What's the next thing? I just got scared of how it felt to skate fast. So it's the speed. The, the, yeah, the, the faster it went, the scarier it was. Was it your own personal safety? Yeah, but I don't, I don't know why, because I'm not scared of getting injured or falling. So that's where it was very complicated to try and figure out what was the problem. I'm going to go on another path here. <laughs> and I'm wondering about, I'm, gonna, I'm going to enter the C word, control. And I'm wondering whether... Oh, the, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I like to be in control. And being... On ice at high speed will mean you're not in control. Yeah, you're right there. A big thing, that probably is it, a big thing I've always... And I guess that is what we came to when it came to the racing, is like I wasn't in control of what everyone else was doing, which stressed me. When I can't control my boyfriend, stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you think that comes from, the the need to control other people? Because that's quite a a deep-seated fear that... In truth, as you and I know, Elise, you can't control other people. Where does that wish come from? Oh, yes, it's pretty, if you can control it, you prevent yourself getting hurt. But you can't. No, but that's what you're trying to do, aren't you? I knew I had, like, I've been told that I tried to control too many things before, but I never made the link of 
that's why maybe that would make me freeze and races because I can't control certain things that other people are doing. Whereas in, I guess, when I raced and I was better than the people, I could fully control it so it wouldn't matter. Let's go back to the anxiety. And you said the first time you really, really experienced it was at a friend's wedding. Yeah, that was when it became more like, so uh, what I'd say is normal anxiety. So before this point, I've had performance anxiety and anxiety around things where I've got high expectations, but I'd never had it just normal day to day. Uh, Actually, like, kind of started after the Sochi Olympics in 2014 more so when I received a lot of death threats and online abuse. And, like, for me, I went into that as a European champion, a world championship medalist who I'd had no attention. I'd never received any attention and then went into that games and came out very unexpectedly with a lot of attention that I was not used to. And um, and so for me, that I was a speed skater in this bubble who did what I did every day. And I suddenly became a national disaster in some respects, and not only in my country, but in Korea too. Mm. And I then became scared of people. And I became scared that they were judging me, that they were looking at me funny, that... I was that Bambi on ice that, and then that then came into groups of people where I was sitting there and I didn't trust what they were thinking and I couldn't take in what they were saying because I was too busy thinking about all the issues and then I became scared to sleep at night because of the death threats. And So what you're describing is a growing sense of paranoia yeah. around you that you just didn't know what the hell was going on. Was there a particular threat that really, really scared you? I think there was, I remember there being one from a Korean, so it just seems so unrealistic now, but at the time it was such a shock, but they said about they were going to come kill me and my mum, and I was just like, it's not necessary. I can't understand how a sport can lead to someone wanting to kill your mother. Like, that's ridiculous. These were, like, just general public watching sports, sports fans, and I'm an athlete, and I love my sport, and I'm passionate about it, but... I'd never threatened to kill someone over it. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just ridiculous. It's just skating. It just seemed totally insane. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to On the Sporting Couch. I'm Gary Bloom. With me at the National Ice Centre in Nottingham is Elise Christie, Britain's fastest short track skater. How did you change your mindset after the disappointment of losing in Sochi and then turn that into the success in the World Championships? Um, so I spent, I spent about two years where I raced and I was still at the top level. I was winning World Championship medals and I was winning the Europeans and I was, you know, but I was very, very, like, within myself. So I was training blooming hard and I was the strongest in the world by far but I was not given the same amount of race because I got really scared of doing what I did in Sochi so I had a bronze medal in the bag and I knocked everyone over for the gold you know and and I, I stopped doing that I started just sitting in second place or sitting in third or is that because you were frightened of going any faster than you were going no I was frightened of the backlash from the public so I think I'm hearing this correctly, and I'm quite shocked. You were on the ice, racing in a major championships, and you're thinking, if I had knocked somebody over here, there's going to be such a public outcry and such a public backlash, I'd rather finish second or third. Yeah, and I'm shocked. It, no, and I, at the time I wasn't very aware, and it's like anything, isn't it? Psychologically, you're not aware of what you're doing. And then I came back from Worlds... In the year before I won Worlds, so it would have been 2016, I got back and I got, I think I came third overall. I had a second and a bronze. Um, and I was sat there and they were like, so how would that go? And I was like, well, it's rubbish. And they were like, you've just come second in the world. What's wrong with you? And I was like, we're just sat there. wasn't doing anything. We were just racing through the rounds and then sat in second place. And they just went... Oh, and then I kind of went, oh, and was like, this isn't right. I was like, I don't train the way I train every day just to do that anymore. So I decided to get rid of fear of failure. <laughs> it sounds so simple to not decide to get rid of it. <laughs> um, but I basically decided that I needed to race for me again and then stop being scared of failing. So the next season I got... Every medal I won was gold, and then I got about five penalties. <laughs> Which, you know, if I did that at the Olympics, they'd focus on the fact that I got gold medals, not the penalties. But, like, I felt happier with winning and getting the penalty than sitting in second place. So I knew that's how I needed to be because that is who I am. That's how I've always been. It doesn't matter whether it's sport or whatever we're doing in school and stuff. I always wanted to do the best I could do. And... um and I've never been a big believer in the quote, be better than the person you were yesterday. No, there's people that are better than me, so I need to be better than them. That's just the way I've always looked at it. Um, and so I was training to be better than everyone else, but wasn't allowing myself to be better. And I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. So when you get to the 2018 Olympic Games, the Winter Olympics, did you go into those games thinking, this is my time? I don't care if I pick up some penalties. 
I'm coming home with a gold medal. No, honestly, I was injured. <laughs> yeah, so actually, like, behind the scenes, a lot of people didn't know what was really going on, and I had spent the whole season injured. I had uh, two muscle tears and a tendinopathy in my hip. So I'd picked them up in September, and while I was racing, basically went into the Olympic qualifiers very, very fatigued, like over-fatigued, and, um, and tore my muscle while I was racing. And then the tendon off he came after that, and I was in extreme pain trying to skate. I did, however, think I could medal still. Like I was still, I was still meddling at World Cups with it. So, but I didn't. I wasn't in the position I was in when I won Worlds. No. Why didn't you pull out? Of which bit the Olympic qualifiers when I was injured? Mm-hmm. Because if I pulled out, other people wouldn't have qualified for the Olympic Games. So you under pressure from the organisation and other athletes. Of course you are. You know, like I'm when you're a national program, mm-hmm. they're not just looking at one person, they're looking at a team of people. And in in hindsight, sorry to jump in, Elise, in hindsight, what should you have done? Pulled out. <laughs> I had already qualified for the Olympics. So technically I hadn't because the Olympic qualification is very complicated, but I had qualified a spot in every distance already. So if I had pulled out in September, like the, from September and rehabs and got rid of the pain, gone back into training, by February I'd have been in a way better position. But what actually happened was I skated, I injured myself at the competition, skated the next weekend through it, injured, got sent home because I couldn't skate anymore had for three weeks where I didn't train, went back out and competed in immense pain, and that pain never went because all I did was train on it. I'm wondering, when you tell me this story, how easy or difficult it is for you to stand up to authority and tell your truth. Um, no, it, I mean, we had meetings about it. It's not like I didn't try. Okay. Um and I think I don't think they were in an easy position either, though. You know, I sat in a room and I said, "I'm I'm not racing it. I've technically qualified spots, although I'm not qualified. But it'd be insane if they didn't select the the previous world champion, who's highest ranked in the World Cups right now, of the British skiers. But you know, I was told that you know you were impacting whether someone else might qualify, which is a hard thing to deal with. These are my teammates that I train with every day, and I care about them, and I want them to do well. So there was that in my head but then also they said you know we don't know if you'll get selected if you don't skate it right and I went out that room crying and decided I had to skate so you skate at Pyeongchang in Korea you crash out twice disqualified I did not crash out I got knocked over I love the anger But that, you know, and every newspaper, every, you know, all the internet stuff. Well, the first thing I'm going to explain is if you're standing at the side of the road with your hand out and a car hits your arm at 30 miles an hour, are you going to stay on your feet? Nope. No. Okay. Just a bit of common sense added into that statement. (laughs) But, yeah, no, it was frustrating. The refereeing and... There's been complaints about the refereeing since there's the Chinese have refused to hold World Cups because the refereeing was so bad at the Olympic Games. The refereeing was awful. There was a girl in the final who meddled who shouldn't have even been in the final. And if she hadn't been in it, 
even if I got knocked over, because of the disqualification, I still would have meddled. So it's a very it's a very frustrating time for me. And I love the anger here that's coming out, Elise, because actually I'm going to take you back in time. Very often when you work with people who have anxiety, depression, I believe as a therapist there is anger bubbling away. And right early back in your life you talked about being bullied at school uh, and being unhappy at school. And I wonder whether that bubbling anger then comes out when somebody <laughs> says you crashed out. Oh, yeah, of course it does. And it's very difficult at the time to explain that in the media because you're upset. And, you know, I was on medication. I was medicated, so I was a bit withheld with emotions, which I think a lot of people are when they're on the medication. Mm. Um, it's, it is frustrating to know your sport and know it inside out and know exactly what happened and know, actually, like, don't, I don't often sit there and say the referee made a really bad decision, but he did that day, and... I've said that to him, I've spoken to him about it since, you know. And the the worst thing about the whole thing is my best distance that I had focused on. Normally I focus on all three distances, but because of the injury, I had chose to focus on a single distance, and it was the last distance. And by the time I got to the last distance, my ankle was buggered. <laughs> so, um, so it was a very frustrating game. And at the time, I think I wasn't, and I don't know if this is because of the medication or because I just was avoiding it, but I was not dealing with it. I was just, I wasn't even treating it like it was my Olympics because I couldn't deal with it. I was just, I remember like when I got injured, my best friend who was a fellow teammate came in and my coach comes in and they start crying. And I'm just sat there like, what's wrong with them? You know, because so, I, couldn't, I couldn't make that relation to it at the time. You talk about 2018 being the worst year of your life. Yep. Why? <laughs> well... You I, know, it's interesting that you laugh whenever I put my finger on something oh, quite Oh, I'm a painful. nervous laugher, aren't I? <laughs> okay, tell me about 2018. What was going on for you then? Obviously, there was lots of stuff went wrong before that. Uh, which I avoided and got on with. And I think, like, part of it, part of the first bit that frustrated me was, like, so one grand passed away when I was at Olympic qualifiers for Sochi. One passed away at World Championships uh, the, week, the week I left. And so for me, I'm sitting there and thinking, I haven't gone to their funerals. I've missed saying goodbye to them because of this sport, and this has happened. So that's number one where I'm like, stuff this sport. <laughs> then, uh, then there's, like what happened at the Olympics. Yep. There was getting back from the injury, which was a nightmare. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. Um, they had an ex- I put all my savings into an extension. They ran away with my money. <laughs> so I've still got a useless brick, <laughs> empty thing out the back of my house. Um, there was shower- losing showering. That was your partner at the time? Yeah, and, and we'd been together a long time. And we were very, very close. So I lost him. And it, you've actually said to me prior to this interview, it's not something I want to talk about. Yeah. And I'm not going to push you in that area. I'm wondering what it did to you, the, the abandonment. Did yeah. it bring up old stuff? I think, I think, like, oh, yeah, of course. But I also just couldn't understand how after, like, you know, over three years of being with someone who you've gone through, like, everything with you know we were, we were both skates so we went through everything together and before the olympics had no problems we were totally fine to how um, the worst period of my life and he knew i was at the worst period of my life could just walk away from it and act like i never existed 
and it was like that there was no communication he sent a message and we never communicated again until recently where we just you know we're, we talk like normal people now but I couldn't understand how anyone could do that to someone and I think a lot of people who go through big breakups do feel like that especially when the breakup is caused because you're in a bad place like you expect that they'll be there at that point not let you down <laughs> This is On The Sporting Couch. My guest at the National Ice Centre in Nottingham, Elise Christie. Sheldon was a very like loving kind of guy. He wasn't like a tough guy at all. <laughs> you know, he was very cuddly and very soft and like wanted to make sure you felt okay. And to be honest, I never really needed it because I'd always been all right, you know. I'd had my anxiety and I was depressed, but I was dealing with it okay and it never really came out on him mm. until after the games and that's when, yeah, you, I lost the biggest support I had. And then and then further down the line, a couple of months later, they, my coach left, who was the next big support I had. Another abandonment. And hence my coach. So when I self-harmed really badly, uh, my coach was the first person I went to see and spoke to. Why do you think you self-harmed, Elise? I think, like, you talk about the two, there's two different situations that lead to it. The one is, like, you're on the medication, you don't feel anything, and I wanted to feel something. But then when I did it really badly, it was more that I couldn't deal with how I felt anymore, and it took the pain away because you had physical pain instead. You see, the interesting thing about self-harm, and it's a really... Not an easy topic to talk about, but I recognise what you say about people who self-harm want to feel something. They're deadened internally. Well, that's what depression does, doesn't it? Exactly. It numbs everything. So the actual act of seeing maybe a, a cut or a wound or, some, or the pain of, of cutting actually makes you feel something. But taking that to the next step, taking that to the next level, where there could be a threat of permanent damage or even suicide that takes it to something quite different yeah and I think um well obviously like I think the more you do it the more normal it seems to become like right now I'm sitting there thinking this is not normal but it is normal when you're in that place and the more normal it comes the worse it gets you begin to think that it's okay almost whereas in the first time you do it you think what am I doing that was weird and I think whatever it is you do because everyone does it differently it, it just becomes more and more normal and then you know then it can get out of hand and what happened in December was out of hand for me and I after that I'm, I decided I was gonna I wasn't gonna do that again that did you it. did you frighten yourself yeah yeah I was scared I scared I really scared myself and it yeah and it, it, it definitely was a turning point for me um and that, that was my biggest comment is like at your lowest lowest point you can still get back from it and I got back quite quickly you know it's only March when I became well April I I became myself again. How did you get from where you were in December to the at least that you found yourself improving in March? There was a few different things the first the first thing I did was accept the way I felt so I didn't know at this point that I'm going to be off medication in three or four five months whatever it is but I accepted that I felt that way. The next thing I did, which sounds 
totally the wrong thing to do is instead of self-harming I went to sleep <laughs> so, um, and then when I woke up I normally felt better and then then I decided right I can accept it all and I'm dealing with how I feel in a different way right how do I how do, and anytime I got close to self-harming again I thought about what happened in December and was like well I don't want to be there again so that's not going to happen was the fear that you would kill yourself uh I don't know I've been asked that a lot. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I just didn't like what happened. It was bad, and I did not want to go down that route again. Being in a place where you you're on that verge, where you've done something really bad, where that could have happened, you're kind of like, well, no, that I don't want to die. <laughs> um, so, but I chose. You know, I chose. I'm going to live, and I chose that I'm going to live as me again, and I'm going to get there gradually. And I didn't rush it. And then. Um, the next thing I did, which was one of the biggest, most important things I did, was I took everyone who had a negative impact out of my life. And that, that did mean I lost some people I was quite close to. But for me, I knew I couldn't get better constantly being surrounded by people who were, not intentionally even, but people who were bringing me down and making it worse. And then the people who I did want to keep in my life who were doing that, so I'll use an example, I'm going to name names, but I had a best friend who was acting negatively towards me when I got into new relationships and things like this, and, and it constantly did it, and it constantly judged my behaviours and just tried to like control everything I was doing, but it made me feel rubbish, you know? Mm. I just wanted to be me and be people be happy around me, and instead of like pushing him out of my life, I chose I was going to talk to him about it properly, like adults, you know, and I said... <laughs> I said, you know, you can't... I understand why you're acting this way, and it's because you want to be with me. It sounds really arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, you can't keep bringing me down because you're jealous. It's not fair. And he understood, you know. He looked at it from my point of view, and, and we moved forward. And I did things like that. I dealt with all the relationships in my life. And then, um, and then the last step, really, was I felt like I was ready to come off the medication... And that was hard. That was the hardest bit. <laughs> but I was very lucky that I had one of my best friends around me at the time had gone through the same thing about a year ago. And he basically, like, was there every step. Um, and I think that's another thing that's important is if you have someone like that who has gone through it or you can reach that advice. I think really because the only people who know how to get through that period are the people who have done it. So it was it was really important that I reached out every time. Every I was I felt like I was annoying him, but I wasn't. But every time I felt like physically I couldn't do it because of the withdrawal symptoms or yeah. emotionally I couldn't deal with feeling these emotions anymore. I spoke to him and he rationalised it. You know, um, he said like you find your happy place, whatever that is. So if it's music, you put some music on. If it's sleep, and you sleep. If it's eating, you eat. If you whatever you need to do at that point. If it's your dog, you think of your dog. You know, whatever that. Everyone's got a happy place. What would you say to anyone who thinks self-harming is the way forward? Um, well, it's not, because as I've said before, it's it's a downward spiral and it becomes more normal, which means it gets worse and worse and it gets out of hand. And then and then people idolise suicide because it's the only way out, because the self-harm stops working, you know, and, and it, isn't, it isn't the right way to go. And I understand if you feel the need to do something little because you need to get rid of how you're feeling right then but instead of doing that 
phone someone you know there's just phone them and I've done it since I've been off the medication I've never been near to self-harming again because I've, I've refused to do that but when I felt really crap and I've just phoned someone and they've just talked normally to me it's not even like they're not going to fix it and I know that now um but there's definitely something else you can do to make yourself better rather than hurting yourself that's for sure as we head towards the end of our conversation, and it's been absolutely fascinating, and, and thank you for sharing so many different insights into, into your struggles. There's a few themes that come up for me, Elise. One of them is disappointment. How do you deal with disappointment? Because that is a huge developmental issue for all of us. Stuff's going to happen for us. Yeah. We're going to lose in, comp- in competitive sport. We're going to have breakups of relationships. Do you think that's something that you have struggled with historically all your life, how you deal with disappointment? Yeah, I think maybe the problem I've had is, like, my way of dealing with disappointment was moving on. So I never dealt with it. So, like, if so- like Sochi went wrong, my next focus was the Olympics, the next Olympics. I'd, I'd just forget about it and move on. Or if I had a breakup, okay, what's next? Who's the next boyfriend almost? You know, it sounds ridiculous, but... I always had a different goal to focus on, which I think is good in some ways because it makes you driven and it makes you go for new things and achieve. But at some point, if you don't deal with it, it's going to all come hit you at once. So, Because the obvious conclusion to our to this bit of our conversation is you're not going to be a professional sportswoman forever. It's going to come to yeah. an end one day. How do you deal with the, 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 the posh word for it is transitioning? How are you going to transition out the sport? Is that going to be a disappointment? No, I think, like, with where I am now, I'm just... The main focus for me is, like, do you like the person you are in the mirror? And that's not looks, but how you're acting. Do you, do you like yourself? Right now, yes. <laughs> I didn't. I spent a long time not liking the way I was acting and the things I was doing and the things I was saying. Um, I got myself... This is the other thing I think a lot of people going through depression, anxiety and things like that end up doing. I got myself in a lot of money problems. Like, because I was avoiding things. I was spending money on going on holiday because it made me feel better. I was, um, you know, got myself in a lot of... And I think this is, and I think people do this with drink a bit as well, which I didn't necessarily do because I'm an athlete, but I could see why people would do that. Like, you get, you get drinking problems and you get the money problems because you're avoiding dealing with life. These are addictive behaviours which cover over the yeah. pain, don't they? So instead of dealing with the money problems and dealing with actually spend your money on the things you need to spend them on that are going to in the long run make you happier because you've not got stress I didn't and I by this time I came from medication I got myself in a lot of trouble which I'm now dealing with but the thing is that's different now is like it doesn't stress me now because I know I'm moving in the right direction there'll be people listening to this they'll say why didn't you quit after all the grief that you've been through during and after the Olympic Games, where does your resilience come from and can we have some? <laughs> That's nice. Um, now, the, the, the first thing is, like, I am a very determined person anyway. I've always been like that. I don't back down in arguments. You know, that's partly built into me. But I think this time round wasn't necessarily so much about that. It was about the response I had from Pyeongchang, from mainly the kids, um, around that they were saying, you know, she never gives up, she's our hero and all this. And I came back from Pyeongchang and I hated the sport. And I hated how I felt, but I sat there and I thought, well, I've not got a, re- a valid reason to stop. 
like yeah I have injuries older athletes always have injuries I don't have a massive injury that's stopping me skate I don't you know I'm still high level I'm still winning medals so if I just stop now is that really setting the right example well no it's not and I don't believe that's in my values to set the wrong example and what to do Elise Christie many (laughs) thanks for joining me on the sporting couch thanks You've been listening to On the Sporting Couch, a programme about good mental health in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, a sports psychotherapist, and with me at the National Ice Centre in Nottingham today has been Elise Christie, Britain's fastest short track skater. I hope you've enjoyed today's show, but if you've been affected by anything in today's programme, then there are some useful links on the TalkSport website, talksport.com forward slash sporting dash couch. And you can listen to the show again by googling ACAST on the Sporting Couch. You can contact me at Bloomers57 on Twitter and I'll be delighted to hear from you. And please remember, there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.